and welcome to episode 42, my goodness, episode 42 of UConn 360. That's the only podcast in the known universe that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. We have a full house. Uh, I'm back, for starters. You may have missed me uh, last episode. You may episode. not have. You may not have. We had a very highly rated episode in my absence, which I'm still a little insecure about. Uh, my name is Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator of sorts. Joining me, as always, are my colleagues, Julie Bartuka. Hey. Ken Best. We are here. And joining us for the first time, this is very exciting for us, our first ever student worker, Maxine Filavong. Maxine, hello. Hello. Uh, Maxine is going to be helping us out, making this podcast even better than it is, if such a thing is possible. We'll find out. <laughs> um, Maxine, we'll find out in like two weeks. <laughs> we'll find out in two weeks. Right, exactly. A fortnight, as we say here. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, you're a student here at UConn. I am a student here at UConn. I am a senior I'm studying history and journalism nice. to get this job. <laughs> I actually just messaged Tom on Twitter. It's true. And said, please hire me. Yes. And it true. happened. <laughs> it did. There, I, I will say there was the whole legal process that went into place. So you can't just message me on Twitter and then I like I don't have that kind of power. I kind of do. Everyone DM Tom if you want a yes. job. Yeah. <laughs> Any job at UConn. Any job. He's the Provost. One. We also have an audience today. We do have an, an audience, audience today. One. Uh, ah, university communications videographer extraordinaire, Angie Reyes. Angie? Hi. Yeah. I don't know if you could hear that, but she said hi. She's very, very friendly. And uh, so, Maxine, welcome aboard. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited. All of you out in listener land, that's where I've designated you. You'll be hearing more from Maxine in the future. But why don't we jump right into it? Why don't we get started with what we always do? It's about do. time. We've been in here for like 25 minutes yeah, already. Yeah, it's true. There's been a lot of setting up. Uh, let's do some Husky headlines. Julie, I'm looking in your direction. <laughs> you can't hear that on the podcast. Fans of UConn basketball and hockey are used to cheering on the Huskies at the XL Center in Hartford. And for this season, UConn Nation will be able to catch our men's and women's soccer teams in the capital city as well. While the new Joseph J. Marone Stadium at the Rizza Family Soccer Complex is under construction up here in stores, the teams will play their home games at the newly renovated Dillon Stadium, which is near Colt Park in Hartford. The home games have already started, but you can find the rest of the schedule at UConnHuskies.com. And as with all Huskies home games this year, UConn students can swipe their student IDs for free admission. Very nice. Ken, what's going on in your world? I'm in the art world this week, Yes, once again. Usually are. Well, sometimes. Uh, while conducting research on issues arising from urban transformation of developing countries in 10 African nations, emeritus sociology professor Yosef Gugler and his wife Janine, who was a printmaker, also spent time with artists who created a variety of works purchased by the Googlers for their own collection. They collected art primarily in Western Africa and recently donated their artwork to the William Benton Museum of Art here at UConn. An exhibition of this work collected during the 1960s through the 1980s, titled Souvenirs d'Afrique, Arts of Africa, from the collection of Janine and Yosef Googler, continues at the Benton through October 13th. The exhibit includes a wide range of religious as well as utilitarian objects, such as masks, carved figures, textiles, chairs, jewelry, dolls, household items, and musical instruments from the Republic of Congo, Ghana, Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, Liberia, Mali, Nigeria, and Sierra Leone. Lots of different places. Art history and anthropology professor Christopher B. Steiner from Connecticut College in New London is an expert in African art, and he served as the guest curator for the exhibit. And he says the really the most interesting thing about this exhibit is that unlike most art purchased by collectors through galleries or dealers, the Googlers created their collection by speaking to the artists and buying the art directly from them. 
The Art in the Benton exhibit is what you would find primarily with an African art historian or an anthropologist working in Africa who would have collected these objects as part of their research. The Googler exhibit fills the entire East Gallery of the Benton. And the Middle Gallery also has a very interesting collection of watercolors made primarily in Cuba from the Benton's extensive holdings of work by American artist Reginald Marsh, who was an illustrator for the New Yorker magazine. Cool. Very nice. Well, um, Julie... You've, yeah. got, you've got some exciting stuff for us this week. Very exciting, always. It's been a while since we featured a student group on the podcast, lots of faculty over the summer. But with school back in session and students both new and more seasoned looking for things to get involved in, what better time to spotlight one? This week, I talked to Ryan Marsh, a senior computer science major who may be better known in some circles as Rhino48. That's his gaming name and name on the platform Discord. He's the events director of Yukon Gaming Club. Yukon Gaming Club is the main group on campus for gaming events, and I think it was established in 2012 by uh, Billy Sprout. He does um, official esports stuff now since he graduated, uh, and we do all types of games. Our main ones are kind of Overwatch, Team Fortress 2, Hearthstone, League of Legends, Counter-Strike, Dota, Rocket League, fighting games. And then also if people have like their own smaller games that they're interested in or like single player stuff we have our discord where people talk about that with each other and also they'll bring it to meetings and play together so we really kind of cater to any kind of gaming style whether you're just the kind of person that wants to play single player games on your own or the person that wants to go full-on competitive esports and play with other UConn students. By some measures, UConn Gaming Club might be one of the biggest organizations on campus. That's because their main form of communication is through Discord, a voice and text chat platform for gamers. Including interested UConn faculty and staff, community members, and students from other schools, UConn Gaming Club's Discord group has nearly 1,100 members. Even high school students who are interested in gaming and UConn have joined the group, getting the inside scoop on the university from its members. But the club isn't just online. Their weekly meetings pack several rooms at the School of Business. Our Smash Bros group, they're very dedicated. We have to give them a room. We reserve four rooms in the School of Business, and we basically give one to Smash Bros because there's so many people that come and they're all dedicated and they bring their own setups. Smash is like big. League of Legends, we give them their own room as well. A lot of people come to that. Um, and then with our first meeting, we pretty much entirely fill all four rooms. The club also hosts two big annual gaming events. Our fall one is the Winter Prowl, and the spring one is the Husky Games. They're pretty much the same. We kind of think of the Winter Prowl as a slightly smaller version of the Husky Games. All right, welcome to the final game of the Husky Games. Oh, You've heard of LCS. You've heard of You've heard of World Championship Finals. No, this is the biggest game. This is Husky Games World Championship. Best of one. Winner takes all. Losers go home. No bars left. How are you feeling today? The main idea of them is that for our featured games, the ones I listed earlier, they have tournaments for them. So we let UConn students and people from other colleges sign up for those. You form teams. You do the bracket up until like the finals, and then the finals are done in person at the event in the UConn Ballroom. And then we have sponsor computers, sponsor tabling, uh, big prizes, big giveaways, raffles. 
So the way you really got my attention was talking about the Big East Conference. And obviously big news was that UConn's basketball and most of our sports were rejoining the Big East Conference. And the Big East also has some involvement in eSports. Can you tell me a little about that and your goal to get UConn as part of that? It's a lofty goal. Uh, (laughs) The conference that they were part of before, they didn't really do anything with eSports. So when we tried to plead our case to the athletic director, he basically said no, because it's not part of the conference. So now we're in the Big East, and the Big East has been testing the waters with eSports the last two semesters. Last fall semester, they tested Rocket League with the schools that are participating in the Big East. It was an opt-in to test it out. So most of them did it. I think there was one or two that weren't. And then the last semester, they also added League of Legends, which is the premier esport with the most kind of involvement and attention and viewers and players, especially in the college scene. So that was pretty big. And it was also directly involved with the makers of the game, Riot Games. So other schools have what are essentially varsity teams for esports. And these can cover League of Legends, Rocket League, Overwatch, Counter-Strike, and they have official pretty much anything that you'd expect of a normal collegiate team they'd have for esports. So captain, manager, coaches, official dedicated areas, setups for their computers. I'm involved with the collegiate scene a lot, so I see other schools doing it, and I see people post update pictures, and I'm like, gosh, I wish we could do that, because you see them designing rooms from the ground up for their players and teams and places for people to watch the games. It's amazing. We don't have that here. (laughs) Our kind of idea is to see how the Big East kind of evolves with that, and then hopefully we can get into it. In the meantime, though, we're trying to build more of our presence on campus with uh, other collaborations. That's an open net! White part gets back in time. There's plenty of debate online about whether esports should be considered a quote-unquote real sport. Angry ESPN viewers take to Twitter asking why this is on their TV instead of soccer or football. What does Marsh have to say to these skeptics? You just haven't watched enough yet. (laughs) Or you haven't found the right game for you. Because personally, the Overwatch League is something I like to look to, where Overwatch started as not an eSport at all. It was just a new game from Blizzard, FPS, 6v6, uh, team-focused. And eventually they built up an eSports kind of franchise called the Overwatch League, which is now kind of the same structure as the NBA or something similar, where you have cities and franchises and dedicated like locations. I wasn't really hooked on esports until I interacted with that. And they have partnered with ABC and ESPN to show some of the games <laughs> on the networks. And I follow this guy on Twitter called Slasher. And he is like a big esports person. And the funny thing is that with these this exposure to new people, you get people that are just angry on Twitter being like, what is this? Why is this on TV? This shouldn't be on TV. And it's like, you just... You got to experience it a little more. Go to a viewing party. Go to a small tournament. Go to like a, a local Microsoft store. They do a lot of tournaments and games there. I think you just need to kind of get more involved with it and try to find a game that you like. And also, while you're sitting there not enjoying it, the numbers keep going up in revenue and viewership 
and games that are participating. So, so there's something there. Yeah. So it sounds like for the Yukon community, gaming club is a good way to try that out and get exposed. Yes. While we don't have official support, we as the club try to support as much as possible. It's all voluntary. We can't pay our people, but they are amazing. Students interested in seeing what Gaming Club is all about can join the Discord group at discord.gg slash UCGC. Check out their meetings on Fridays from 6 to 11 p.m. in School of Business Room 106. And of course, follow Yukon Gaming Club on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to keep up with the latest news, including the dates of the upcoming Husky Games and Winter Prowl. What is up, everyone? You're here live at the Husky Games. We are so excited to bring you some awesome action, including Overwatch, Rocket League, Team Fortress 2, Super Smash Brothers, and many more. Please stop by twitch.tv slash Gaming for some awesome gaming action. Take care, everyone. I'll see you online. Very cool. I believe there are roughly 700 different student groups and there clubs are. and organizations mm-hmm. to belong to at you UConn. You could find pretty much anything you want One, They were all out on Fairfield Way earlier this week yes, trying on to Monday. get more, more people to participate. Yeah. I Involved walked right through the middle there. of that inexplicably. <laughs> <laughs> and they all said, there's Tom. No, yeah. They, I, I was not heavily recruited for anything. <laughs> I thought the most interesting thing was now with the move to the Big East next year that the Big East actually has gaming in their schools and yep. consider it part of what the league is all about. As so. Ryan talked about, he's hoping to get UConn involved in that, which is pretty neat. Very neat. Ken, you've got a, you've got something interesting for us this week. Yes, we've been hearing in recent years about body shaming and bullying of girls and young women by boys and men as well as other women and young girls. Most of the time, these comments focus on body size rather than body shape when it comes to a young girl's body image according to some of the scholarly studies. A doctoral student here at UConn has published a study finding that female characters in animated films may affect the body image of young girls who watch them in a more complex way than previously thought. Rebecca Rowe is a doctoral candidate in children's literature who says while scholars have studied body image in animated films, particularly in the so-called princess characters, they have focused primarily on body size issues rather than body shapes. In her paper titled Shaping Girls, Analyzing Animated Female Body Shapes, published in the journal Animation, Rose says that, in fact, body shapes in animated characters have changed within the last two decades. She studied 239 female characters in 67 films produced by the major animation houses from Disney to Blue Sky that have appeared between 1989 and 2016 and found that the hourglass figure of characters like Cinderella are no longer the only body shape on film. She visited our 360 studio to talk about her research. I've always been interested in children's media. That's what I study. Um, I'm also a huge fan of children's media in general. I spend a lot of time watching these things. I started working on this for a gender woman studies course at my master's institution, which is Kansas State University. We were asked to look at bodies in some way. So look at bodies and gender in any way we wanted to. Lots of people talk about the hourglass figure of the Disney princess. I wanted to start there and see where it went from there. Uh, So I started looking at the way that people talk about the Disney princess line and animated bodies in general, and I started finding some discrepancies in the way that people were talking about it, specifically in the way that people kept talking about body size without really mentioning body shape. And that's where I started really digging into things, thinking about the way that even among the Disney princess line, which a lot of research has been done on, 
the young women have very different body shapes, but everyone was talking about them as if they were the same shape. I thought that was a problem. You looked at 67 films mm-hmm. produced by Animation Studios from 1989 to 2016. 239 female characters in four different body types. Mm-hmm. What did you discover? The two trends that I focused on in my article were, one, that female body shapes basically change over time. 1989 to 1999 is what people call the Disney Renaissance. And that's where we get Beauty and the Beast, Little Mermaid, Aladdin, Tarzan, those movies. And that's where most people have focused their attention is the characters that were developed during that period when they're thinking about Disney. And they all talk about how these women are very slender, which is very true. And a lot of people talk about the hourglass figure of these princesses. But what I found is that as we get further into the 21st century, that's shifting a good deal. Now, instead of the hourglass figure, the predominant figures are the pear figure in which a woman has proportional bust and waist and then a larger posterior. And then the other really frequent shape is the rectangle shape. Basically, my argument about that is, of course, girls aren't getting one clear body image from these films because they're getting increasingly more and more body shapes to take away from the films. And what's missing from the current scholarship is that acknowledgement that there's different shapes. Everyone's like, they're all skinny, they're all the same. What I found is that's that's not true. And so that might be affecting the way that girls interpret these body shapes. The second trend that I was looking at is girl characters. Most people have been focusing on young adult and adult characters. I suggest that they're missing a large percentage of the characters in the films by not focusing on the girl characters. When we're talking about these shapes, let's talk about a couple of the characters to give the listener an idea. An hourglass figure, Cinderella, I think everybody knows what Cinderella looks like, a pear in the rectangular shape. What are the characters that would come to mind when we're talking about those? I think the easiest character to think about with a pear shape is Tiana from The Princess and the Frog. We get some form-fitting dresses for her in which her hips are very clearly much larger than her bust or her waist, but she's also most often in clothes that accentuate it also. So it's very clear that they're they're aiming for the bottom-heavy look for Tiana. Most girl characters are rectangle shape. So I, I think I give the example Penny from Mr. Peabody and Sherman, um, just a young girl who's like straight all the way down, shoulders, waist, hips, straight down. But even characters like Mulan, she has a little bit more curvature, but not enough to like put her into one of the other categories. Now, this is something that young girls see all the time because they're watching all these films. Part of what you're looking at is what the effect of this is Mm -hmm. on young girls and self-image in their body, which is a subject that is paramount in a lot of uh, media and other discussions about how how this influences people's self-image. What are you seeing in that? I didn't actually study any like actual young women or young girls to to look at this. What I did find is that in the social science studies and in the media studies that had been looking at these things, there had been a trend in the scholarship where at the beginning of the 21st century, we see people being like, yes, media definitely affects young uh, young girls' body image. And as we get further and further into the 21st century, people are like, no, it actually doesn't. I say that the reason that we have this disparity is because the body shape is changing and and what body shapes are emphasized are changing. So these researchers are focusing on body size. And so they see a bunch of very thin young women and girls and they're like, ah, 
that must be affecting body image. Um, but what I suggest is that what they're missing in that analysis is the fact that these bodies are actually very different. Like you can't just look at the BMI, for example, and be able to tell like, ah, oh, this will definitely affect girls. Um, I want pe- I want researchers to start thinking about how does the body shape affect the way that girls think about these bodies, not just how big the body is. And by BMI, we're talking about body mass index, which is the weight control and exercise Mm -hmm. uh, measurement. Correct. You also note that there are different descriptions based on whether the age is considered girl or young adult. What exactly does that mean to looking at the body shape? Most researchers focus on young adult characters. Um, This is the Disney princesses, um, all those kinds of characters. And they think about what do those characters look like? How is that affecting young girls? None of the researchers that I looked at looked at girl characters. So this is prepubescent girls, right? Nobody was thinking about how these bodies would be affecting girls just as strongly as the young adult characters that have been focused on. So my argument is that these young girls will be watching other young girls and those bodies will be affecting them just as much. And when I look at girl body shapes, they're predominantly rectangle, which is unsurprising, right? Like they haven't been through puberty. They haven't developed breasts, you know, butts, whatever. So it's unsurprising, but also it's not talked about. I think it's really important that girls are getting overwhelmingly representations of girls like themselves who are varying weights, but all have a very similar body shape that that corresponds to the body shapes that young girls would have. And I think that's the piece of research that's really missing currently. As is often the case, this is a incremental step in looking at this issue. It has been looked at before, as you made reference to, and going forward, now that you've done your first entry into this, where do you see your next step? Um, the next step probably needs to be taken care of by um, social scientists. I just want social scientists to start thinking about how they're thinking about bodies. Currently, they're very limited in the way they think about bodies. So my intervention here is simply, please look at bodies in more like complex ways. Um, so I hope to see in the future people looking at the bodies, looking at the body shapes, and also thinking about things like race, ability and disability, queerness, and how that's coded on the body. Like there's so many different things that until relatively recently d- weren't really making it into animation, but it is becoming more and more apparent in animation as we have things like the How to Train Your Dragon franchise, which is based around two disabled characters. And we have more and more characters of color appearing in animation. So there are other factors that we need to be looking at besides just the body size. I love that piece, Ken. I am a big Disney princess nerd. And I also am very into positive body image. So that was really right up my alley. And I love that there's a reflection of the inclusivity that's showing up in other media as well. And you thought you liked the music too. I loved the music, yes. This is the second study that's kind of related to body type and animation and characters. A couple of years ago, Sarah Austin, another doctoral student in English, did a piece on superheroes and the kind of clothing that the female superheroes, particularly the high school superheroes and the monster high school characters have, that they're having clothing that is not just tight-fitting and kind of inappropriate for what the storylines are, but they're wearing functional clothing, flat shoes rather than heels and things like that. So this seems to be a theme that's going on in the analyzation of children's literature these days. Speaking of 
Disney princesses. Oh, yeah? Uh, you know, a lot of people would say that Charles and Augusta's stores were the Elsa and Anna of Yukon. <laughs> I think – is it Anna or Anna? I don't know. I think it's Anna. I'm, impressed, it's Anna. That, I'm impressed that I got that. Our, our youth says it's Anna. <laughs> okay. All right, good. Well, I'm, I, I was going to say Ariel first, and I knew that was wrong. Ariel is very wrong. Uh, okay, so the Elsa and Anna of Yukon, <laughs> Charles and Augusta stores, we're all pretty familiar with the Storrs brothers mm-hmm. and what they did. But I have a question because uh, I like to start Tom's History Corner with a question since it's a lazy rhetorical device and I don't think too hard about my piece. Um, which Storrs brother is actually responsible for the idea to make the donation that became Yukon? I'm going Augustus. Augustus. Any other guesses? <laughs> well, there's a 50% chance. It, it is there. Mm. Oh, mm. other stores. So there was brothers. another stores yeah. brother. There is another stores brother. We never know about that. We never hear about the other stores. Why brother. isn't his name mentioned? He, he also, by far, has the best name of any stores yes. brother. Yes. Um, talking about Royal Otis Stores. Yes, I have heard of him. He's the oldest brother. Okay. So the Stores brothers were uh, members of a very old family in the area. They're the descendants of Samuel Stores who came to New England in 1663, settling in Barnstable, where I was uh, recently. Last week when last we week, didn't have you. Um, before moving to Mansfield in 1719. So they've been around for a long time, and they were all born within a few years of each other at the start of the 19th century. Royal Otis was the oldest. Augustus was the middle child. Did and he go by Royal Otis? I think he went by Royal. Okay. I hope so. Um, and then Charles was the, the youngest. So there's dispute over which brother was actually responsible for having the idea that became Yukon. They all went into business together in what was then the city of Brooklyn and is now the borough of Brooklyn, New York. They started a commission house, the three of them, the Storrs Brothers Commission House. And a commission business in the 19th century was kind of like venture capital. Okay. Manufacturing was really young and banks wouldn't lend money to manufacturers. So these sort of kind of hybrid companies started basically to extend lines of capital to manufacturers and then hopefully reap the profits. And the Storrs brothers made a lot of money, enough for Royal Otis to retire at a very young age and come back to Storrs and buy the family homestead. Um, whereas Charles and Augie, I don't know that anyone called them Augie except <laughs> you that can't restaurant. Mix, you can't mix Charles and Augie. It'd be Chuck and Augie. Chuck and Augie. Charles and Augustus. That's a good point. So uh, Charles and Augie uh, <laughs> continued on the You business. can't do it. Okay, I'll do it. I'll just do it. <laughs> Continuing on with the business after Royal Otis had returned home, and Charles never came back to Storrs, hmm. or Mansfield, as it was called at the time. However, Augustus came back, persuaded Royal to sell him the family homestead, and turned it into a model farm. This is where our narrative diverges. According to a biography of Charles Storrs published during his lifetime, written by a woman named Laura Holloway, she gave him credit for establishing the school, quote, having experienced the intellectual privations that are too commonly incident to farm life, Charles determined that when he was ready to help his fellow men, he would make it his duty to establish an agricultural school. And Charles, actually, before becoming a venture capitalist, had been a teacher. Hmm. Um, however, Augustus, who, remember, is the farmer, and I don't know where Royal went after this. Was he murdered? Did no, he I have die? no idea. I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to. No, he, I mean, he's buried up there with the rest of them. Okay. So, uh... Augustus starts this farm, and uh, according to the commemorative biographical record of Tallinn and Wyndham Counties, published in 1903, which I'm sure is on everyone's shelf. Absolutely. Augustus is the one who deserves credit. Quote, everyone who visited his farm was attracted by its fertile fields and excellent buildings. He concluded that if such results could be brought about by care and study, it would pay to start an agricultural college. 
So no one really knows. No one really knows. Okay. What we do know is that Augustus donated 170 acres of land and several buildings, including Whitney Hall, which became the first uh, – it, it was the only building on campus for a while – uh, whereas Charles donated $6,000 and 800 volumes from his library. Which is why the brothers are credited with That's starting right. the school. And Royal is written out of the history. In the early 20th century, the most common explanation for the reason for their donation was that they had witnessed too many country boys coming to Brooklyn and failing to make it in the big city. Sounds like a country song. So they wanted to establish an agricultural college to keep them down on the farm. Another less altruistic explanation was popular at the time, too, which was that they feared the state was going to establish what uh, biographer Walter Stemmons called an institution for unfortunates, which would have depressed property values. So they. Oh, but then they still got all that with the uh, yeah. depot campus. Yeah. I don't know if that was. Uh, that was probably, probably after just like their a, time. Yeah. So does this mean that your favorite boy should be called Gus instead of Jonathan? My favorite boy should be called Gus? No. That has nothing to do with Just it. Just checking. Jonathan's <laughs> named after Jonathan Trumbull. There's no, no relation to the story. I understand brothers. that. But, but if, God can. But if, Gus, but, if, but if Gus was largely responsible, we need to remember Gus. Yeah. This, this is Royal Otis Erasure, and I won't stand for it. <laughs> Royal Otis does deserve well, what, a place. What did Bruce Dave have to say about this? Uh, Bruce Dave doesn't even mention Royal Otis. Hmm. So uh, I, had to, I had to dig deep in the archives to find out. Are there any stores descendants around? That's a good question. I don't know. Like we would now. Well, maybe. You know, that they all kind of relocated to Brooklyn, so they wouldn't be in the area anymore. Of course, the up there you referred to is the cemetery up the street from where we are right now. Yes, that's right. You go up to the top of the cemetery and you can find all three brothers, uh, as well as other family members. And in their will, they also donated the cemetery. And in Charles's will, he required that their monument uh, always be maintained in a way that the steeple of Storrs Congregational Church is visible. Hmm. Fun facts from there you, Tom. There you, there you go. So, uh, yeah, we, we end with a question. Who was responsible? And send us your votes. Send us your votes. On which, which stores, brother? And think of something we could name after Royal Otis Stores. I feel like an ice cream flavor. Yeah, I totally was thinking ice cream. Yeah, like the Royal Otis something. Royal Otis oatmeal. <laughs> all right, we, we're going to workshop that one Royal a little bit. oatmeal cookie. Okay, all right. I, the Royal Otis cookie. Don't we need a street renamed someplace? Always. Yeah. All times. Building? I feel like it would be more beloved as an ice cream flavor than a... <laughs> Angie's nodding emphatically. Yes. <laughs> Truth. Bananas right. and strawberries in there? Chocolate. chocolate. On you that chocolate. note. And on that bombshell, um, uh, let's wrap it up this week. Thank you. Finally. As always for listening. If for some reason you want more of this, <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter.com at UConn Podcast. Um, you can follow Julie on Twitter, right? At Julie Bartuka. I'm can't, sorry, I'm laughing. You can't follow Ken. Maxine, no. do you want to give out your Twitter handle? Yes. You can follow me at Maxine Filivong on Twitter if you can spell it. <laughs> that's, that's your, your passage in. That's your first. T- yeah, that's right. You got That's right. You got to be worthy. You can't. This isn't just for anyone. Prove yourself. Ken, we can't follow you on Twitter. No, but you can read me at today.ucon.edu and the WHUS version of the UConn 360 podcast Fridays at 11 a.m. on 91.7 WHUS UConn Sound Alternative. You can sit at the foot of the Stores Memorial on top of Cemetery Hill and broodingly listen to us on your battery-operated radio like an 80s goth. (laughs) This is going to be a joy to have (laughs) you.